Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Thank you so much, um, uh, Professor Kershaw. Before you start, uh, I'm very humbled with this round of applause. So if I may just deviate and ask uh, the audience to join me in a round of, loud of, uh, uh, a round of applause to my institution that I think made all the difference in, in, in my career, my life, my way of thinking, and this round, round of applause is to LSE. Thank you so much, Prime Minister. Thank you you so much. It's so wonderful to have you here. My name is David Kershaw. I'm the Dean of uh, uh, LSE Law School, uh, and I want to welcome you all here tonight. Uh, It's fabulous to to see so many people. Um, Before I uh, introduce the Prime Minister and before we start our conversation, uh, there's a few small housekeeping things I need to mention. Um, uh, No photos, please. them in quick. Um, um, no, no, no videos. Um, um, uh, the Twitter hashtag is not there. Okay. <laughs> supposed to be there. Uh, uh, the fire exits, uh, you know, they're the doors you came in on. So we are absolutely thrilled and honoured uh, to have the Prime Minister here with us uh, tonight. Um, the fact that he's t- found time from his diary, he's just come from Davos on a Friday evening to talk to us is, uh, is really exceptional. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, I won't take you through uh, all of the Prime Minister's bio because we won't have time to do much talking if I do. Um, and you'll forgive the impertinence, Prime Minister, but most importantly of all from your bio, if I just focus on some of the highlights, is that you are a graduate of the LSE Absolutely. Law Absolutely. This is the most important item. Um, he holds an LLM, a Master of Laws, and a PhD uh, from the LSE Law School. The PhD is in international law. It was focusing upon the right of return of Palestinians who had, Palest- who had Jordanian nationality. He did that PhD with two renowned international lawyers, Chris Greenwood, who left LSE to go uh, onto the International Court of Justice, and Shaloka Bayani, uh, who uh, is here in front of us, who was recently a nominee for the International Court of, of Justice. Um, Now, before becoming Prime Minister um, and Minister of Defence in 2020, uh, the Prime Minister was also Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Minister of State for Legal Affairs. He was an ambassador in four different jurisdictions. He was an ambassador to the African Union, and an ambassador to the League of Arab States. Um, I could go on, but I'm not going to go on. The Prime Minister has had a remarkable career. When the Prime Minister agreed to come and talk to us, uh, we had planned a small event in front of a few of our students. Um, And we asked him if he would be, because we knew that so many people would be interested in listening to him, we asked if he would be willing to come and do a a larger event uh, from a few students to 400 people in this room. So we're very, very grateful to the Prime Minister for that. Now, I should also say that this evening was planned before the terrible events of October the 7th and before uh, the terrible conflict that has subsequently ensued. And the original idea of of this evening is something that we don't want to lose sight of. Now, we will talk a little bit 
uh, about the conflict, but the original plan was to talk to the Prime Minister about his career path, um, about his career path in law, uh, to the LSE, into politics, and so we're still going to spend a bit of time doing that, and we also originally planned to talk a little bit about the Jordanian economy and its development and where it stands today, and again, we'll do a little bit of that as well, and then we will turn uh, to uh, uh, the conflict. So. Let's start, Prime Minister, if I may, uh, and then I should say we'll take a few questions at the end of our conversation. Um, let's start with the personal. Um, you decided to study law, um, and I'm guessing you must have loved the study of law, I and mean, we love the study of law, but you must have loved the study of law too, because you went from your undergraduate to do an LLM, to do uh, an LLB. So tell us a little bit about that choice to study law, to become a lawyer, and then the choice to take a PhD at LSE. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor. And if I may just take a moment to recognize my, uh, my tutor and dear friend, uh, Dr. Chaloka Bayani, and, uh, and I salute Chaloka, who is basically one of the leading figures in international law, who couples a wealth of information with uh, impeccable principle. So, Dr. Bayani, it's very good to see you again, my dear friend, Professor Bayani. Uh, 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 partially, it was influenced basically by, uh, by my, uh, my parents, who, uh, who are both uh, uh, graduates of law. Uh, uh, my father uh, is a graduate from the uh, uh, Faculty of Law at Cairo University, 19, early 1960s. That's where practically he uh, met my mom, who was an Iraqi studying then in Cairo University, which was quite revolutionary at the time. And they were both the Faculty of Law in Cairo University. And I think that fundamentally I was influenced by the fact that my both parents ended up studying law in general terms, although again, my father initially did not practice law went into public service, uh, and uh, later, after retiring as a cabinet minister in 1989, he ended up practicing law and opening his law firm, which coincided with the decision time for me uh, to basically elect what I'm going to study. And at a certain point in time, I decided that I will pursue my legal studies because I might well wind up in that legal practice, in that office uh, of law. So I studied law at Jordan University, and uh, subsequently, towards the end, I, uh, I basically ran for the competition uh, to join the Jordanian Foreign Service, which coincided with my graduation from mm -hmm. the uh, LLB in Jordan University. I winded up being selected, and uh, uh, I enjoyed the study of law, but certainly my inclination in general was in the direction of public international law. I, I liked diplomacy, because also my father was a diplomat. And I used to move through different places, different capitals with my father uh, along the lines of his career. So I, uh, uh, I joined the foreign ministry in Jordan, and then basically I was posted to London. Uh, and the reputation of LSE preceded LSE throughout. Uh, so practically, I, uh, uh, I made a bid for our embassy in London. Uh, I got selected uh, uh, for the job. Uh, I must pay tribute to a colleague because we were both selected to the job. And that colleague who has sadly uh, passed away uh, a couple of years back, uh, his posting was supposed to be beginning in June and my posting was supposed to be beginning in January. And out of selflessness, which was basically a feature that he always had, 
He went to the administration, the foreign ministry, and told them this guy wants to basically do an LLM at LSE, and the course starts in September, uh, October. So I'll, I want to switch with him, let him go first. Uh, so I ended up coming and I joined the law department and at that, at that point in time I was really, really assisted immensely by a great scholar and a great human being and a great lady, Dame Rosaline Higgins. I studied under Dame Rosaline Higgins, uh, uh, the law of international organizations, and she was my supervisor. Uh, and she is a remarkable human being, a remarkable jurist, a person of principle. And I, uh, frankly, I caught a lucky break, Professor mm -hmm. Kershaw. Uh, during that year, uh, it was Rose Higgins, it was Daniel Bethlehem, it was Ellie Lauterpacht, uh, and, uh, and it was Rain Mullerson. Um, and, and this lineup was basically just, uh, just, just a dream come true for a reader in international law. Uh, so I ended up doing international law of natural resources with Ellie Lauterpacht and Rose Higgins, uh, United Nations law with Rose Higgins and Daniel Bethlehem, international law of armed conflicts and the use of force with. Uh, with Rain Mullerson, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, it was at a time also when uh, the peace negotiations in the Madrid process was just basically kicking in. Uh, uh, and I was heavily assisted by Rose Higgins in, uh, in, in, in seeing this through because I was also in the employment of, of an embassy. I was a diplomat. I was making the rounds from High Street Kensington using the central line to, and stopping by a temple in the afternoons, and I had an ambassador who frankly believed in, in, in the value of education and the value of institutions like the London School of Economics and Political Science, uh, where he would cut me a lot of slack in, in many instances and just basically, basically allow me to bail in the last hour or last hour and a half of official time to come and do my classes. Uh, and of course, that reputation of LSE always preceded LSE. Um... Uh, and I, 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 I encountered and knew uh, friends who had been at LSE when, uh, when at, po at, at certain points in time it was pointed to uh, as being a, beac a beacon of leftist ideas, but that was a long time ago. Uh, and, uh, and I saw the quality of education and depth of knowledge that they basically had, and, uh, 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 and the acceptance of diversity and intellectual challenge. And to me, this was basically a dream come true, and I still basically cherish that experience. And I think that it had the most profound effect subsequently on my entire professional career and my academic career. And then when I completed the LLM, uh, it, it almost coincided with the end of my diplomatic term and tenure in London. So I had a discussion with my dear friend Daniel Bethlehem at that point in time, and I told him, would you be interested in, uh, in, in supervising a PhD thesis that centered around what was, what was then a hot topic? Uh, 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 and in the context of uh, a peace treaty that Jordan had, had signed with Israel after the Palestinians had, had signed their agreement with Israel a year before. And I told him, do you think that basically you would have the time to supervise a thesis that centers around the right of return of Jordanians of Palestinian refugee origin who are at the same time, uh, they're, they're both concurrently Jordanian nationals, but at the same time they're registered with UNRWA as Palestinian refugees and their right to compensation and return and the right of the Jordanian state to seek uh, compensation on their behalf before international fours in light of the Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty and Jordan's right to seek compensation as a host state. And, and Daniel basically was, was, was thrilled with the prospect of the subject and was kind enough to tell me, yes, I am interested in doing so. Uh, 
So I registered and I went back to Amman and I decided to basically apply for a leave of absence uh, for two years because I had to basically do my two years in London. I came, I stayed in High Holborn, out of all places. It was a new residence uh, and it was a beautiful dorm uh, by, by the general standards of the time. Exactly. Um, um, uh, no one got their own bathroom in those absolutely. days. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I didn't have one. I used to share a bathroom with about four or five people, but, but it, was, it, was, it was extremely tidy and, and, and all of my neighbors were extremely considerate, maybe more than myself. But, <laughs> but, but it, was, uh, it was really, really uh, nice and, and, and it, it was the gold standard. I mean, of course, it was a departure from High Street Kensington where I used to live two years before as a diplomat. And my finances allowed me to basically run for those two years. And back in the day, uh, the registration of the PhD used to be provisional. You used to be registered and fill backslash PhD. And then you had to basically go through, go through a mini viva with your supervisor. Uh, towards the end of that year, Daniel Bethlehem left, went to Cambridge, and, and, and come uh, another great jurist and, and great professor and great friend, Professor uh, Christopher Greenwood, who basically agreed to talk, to take on the supervision of that PhD. Uh, uh, so I, I, I shifted professors and, and I stayed on and then uh, uh, that many viva happened and, uh, and I went and I told Chris, Chris Greenwood, A, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of funding and, fi um, and finances. I'm not able to secure funding and finances. And B, I'm offered a job in our embassy in Cairo <laughs> uh, as a diplomat. So what do I do? He told me, well, You've done your mini-viva, you've done your residency requirement of 24 months in and around London. You've done your, uh, uh, the, the backbone, the bulk of your research and writing material. So basically, I'm happy to see you every three, three four months and, and send me whatever work you want to send and uh, when you need to send it, and we will go over it uh, together. And the, the means of communication at that point in time were quite advanced, but not as advanced as today. We didn't have FaceTime, we didn't have WhatsApps. Uh, we, uh, we barely had the beginnings of emails. You had a fax. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we did. No, it was just after. Just after. So we were slightly better than faxes. Uh, so I worked with Chris Greenwood uh, for some time. But I need to caution you that basically when you're, not, when you're not physically in the establishment and the institution, you have a tendency of basically sometimes procrastinating and, and, and losing focus. Uh, which is what happened for a couple of years. Well, you're working full-time as well at the uh, same time. And I was working full-time, but, but you, you have a tendency of losing focus. And then in the midst of that, I got married. And then I was posted to our embassy in New York, to our mission in New York. Uh, and, uh, and I began to feel a sense of frustration because I had all the material in my mind, in stashes, in, uh, in, in footnoting, in everything, all the references. And for some odd reason, basically, I had a jam. I could not just sit and write. And, and to basically get over that jam, I used to basically go and purchase a laptop every three weeks. And then my wife told me, the laptop is not going to write your PhD for you, whether it's a bio or whatever. You'll have to sit and do, and do the work. Uh, uh, this went on for another seven, eight months. Uh, and then Chris Greenwood uh, called me up and said, uh, listen, <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, it's a time of choice because you've got another year, year and a half, on, and, and then if you don't do it, then it sort of lapses. The whole, your whole effort lapses. And I recall this was practically early in summer. Uh, so I sat in the months of July, uh, August, September, and October, 
And I produced something. I produced basically what I thought was the first draft. I sent it to Chris Greenwood, and Chris Greenwood told me, would you be able to defend it and come and defend it for a viva in December uh, or early January? And I told him, do you believe that this is basically up to the standard where, where I, I stand the chance, even with corrections? Um, um, and he said, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think it is. So um, there goes it, and then the process of basically selecting the internal and uh, the external. And we had Chiloka, and we had uh, another gentleman, his name is Adnan Amkhan. And I recall at that point in time, the structures at LSE were not as elaborate as they are today. We didn't have this lovely theater. We didn't have the dedicated building that, that, that you kindly toured me in. Uh, uh, I was in the old building in Chris Greenwood's office in, in, in an early evening, and I believe it was a Thursday. And there was Chiloka Bayani, and there was Adnan Amkhan. And they threw at me all sorts of questions. Why, this, why, why do you have this ridiculous footnote down there? Why, what, 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 what's the sense and meaning of that? And uh, 45 minutes down the line, they told me, please step outside. And probably those were the waiting time, which lasted for about 20 minutes, was probably the longest time in my life. I felt that basically this was, this was sort of ages. And I didn't know what to expect. And then Chris come, comes out and waves me in. Uh, and, um, and then uh, one of the three, I can't recall who, told me, well, uh, congratulations, Dr. Khassami. And, and uh, I sort of froze for a moment. Uh, and, uh, and then they elaborated that they were basically awarding me the, the PhD, even without any minor corrections. So I was ecstatic. And uh, in all honesty, at that point in time, my father had almost given up on me. And, 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 uh, <laughs> And, 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 and he, was, he was all for me completing that PhD. So when I made my journey uh, from Jordan uh, to London to, to do the Viva, I took a detour in Abu Dhabi uh, to stay with a friend uh, because I didn't want to put my parents under the psychological pressure of waiting for a result. So I didn't tell them I was going to London to start with. So I went to Abu Dhabi. I stayed with, um, with a friend for a couple of days, then took a, long, a, a flight to London. Then I remember, I used the telephone booth, which is on, on Oldwich. I called my dad. I told him, guess what? I got my PhD. And he goes, you've got to be kidding me. And, and, uh, and, uh, and that was that. And, and he was so happy and, and, and so proud. And for, for moments thereafter, I thought of basically shifting and moving into the academia. Well, can I ask you about this? Yeah, so, so, absolutely. So you, I, ho I hope I did not just basically it's, it's a, it's a go on, uh, on a tangent and bore people with not the story. At all. It's a wonderful story. And what you basically described is every PhD student's complete dream. <laughs> you send your supervisor a draft, and he or she says, okay. <laughs> and he, he or she calls you for a viva, and you have 45 minutes of a tough treatment, and then you, I mean, because, and, and I've spent the day reading some of your PhD. I'm a corporate lawyer, and, I, and, and it, it is a really fantastic piece of work. And so you produce this exceptional piece of work, You've had what, for most international lawyers, is the most incredible experience, the most incredible milieu. Um, for not everyone doesn't know, Rosamund Higgins, uh, president of the ICJ, Absolutely. Christopher Greenwood uh, on the ICJ, I think for eight to ten years, um, Lauterpacht, oh. the most famous international lawyer of the past 70 years. I don't, this is an incredible experience. So you've got this incredible experience. You've loved what you've done. Absolutely. You've produced an incredible product. Was there a moment, really, when you thought, actually, maybe I should go into what is the best profession in the entire universe? It is. Which is my profession. It is. Did you think about that? 
It is, but I came to better discovery that basically in uh, Jordan and also in the UK, unlike the US, it doesn't necessarily pay pay your hefty bills. <laughs> um, one's hefty. Yeah, bill. yeah, that's, that's uh, the sad if truth. If you do it alone. <laughs> but I went into that excursion in 2006, 2007. I basically went and taught at the Faculty of Law in Jordan University. Uh, I did, uh, uh, I taught interna international law of human rights and international law of the sea. Uh, but again, then I just sort of moved, moved places and, uh, and there was an acceleration in, in, in my career path. I mean, two years later, I was ambassador to Cairo, uh, where I stayed for about five years. And then from Cairo, I became minister of state for foreign affairs, then minister of state for legal affairs. Then I got dispatched uh, as, as ambassador to Paris and the UNESCO. Uh, it was not a long excursion, then I came back and I had the honor of, of becoming His Majesty's advisor for communication coordination and policies uh, before he surprised me with the honor of basically asking me to become the Prime Minister on, on the 7th of October 2020. And I'm there. Yeah, so what a, it's an incredible I'm there, right? Um, <laughs> and. You know, when many of our students arrive here at it wouldn't have It wouldn't have happened if it had not been for LSE. Right. <laughs> Hands down, and, and, I, I, I really... And for your friend who changed places with you. Absolutely. Right? So, Absolutely. He, so, he made that happen. Right. So May his soul rest in heavens. He really, he was selfless and he deserves... And, and I, was, I was talking to the ambassador just the day before yesterday. And, and told the ambassador that story, whom the, the, the ambassador did not know. But I mean, this is, this is when you basically need to recognize the value of beautiful souls and spirits. And mm -hmm. this is basically an individual who had both a beautiful mm -hmm. spirit and a beautiful soul. Yeah, and you're very fortunate if you have those beautiful souls that help you in your life, right? So, so when our students uh, look at your career trajectory, Prime Minister, it's an incredible one. And the way you've told it actually seems very directed, right? I went to university to do law, I went to the Foreign Service, I came to the LSE, I got a PhD, I went back to the Foreign Service, I became a politician, I, and then you got all these incredible positions in, in government. It seems like you, you know, had it all planned out. And a lot of our students come to LSE with, those, with that sense, right? I'm going to do X by the time I'm 21, I'm going to do Y by the time I'm 25, and then by the time I'm 28 I've done this. And, and we often tell them, or at least I tell them, the life generally isn't like that. Oh, absolutely. Um, life hits you with lots of contingencies, and where you end up is, is profoundly different from where you expect it to be. That's very correct. But your story seems quite directed. No, is, not is really. No, right. No, not really. Right, so tell us about that, that transition from diplomacy into politics. No, not really. I mean, along, along, along the course of basically ascending into those positions of, 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 of responsibility that I, that I was repeatedly honored to, uh, to, to, have, to have landed, uh, and, and I think with, with the recognition that I cherish by His Majesty a lot uh, on that front, there were times where basically I felt that there are frustrations associated with lack of recognition, and that maybe other individuals were being fast-tracked as opposed to uh, uh, me being stuck in the annals of uh, the ordinary bureaucratic procedure, procedure and, and oftentimes I felt that I was basically at the receiving end of sometimes maybe uh, flack and resistance and hindrance from people who took positions against, uh, against family members uh, in my family, against my dad, who's also a political figure in, in his own right in Jordan. And there were moments where basically I thought that I was quitting at, at, at different junctions, and I thought of... Uh, of exploring the possibilities of going into academia or going into actual legal practice in the law firm. Uh, 
and then when I was in Cairo, towards the end of my tenure, uh, this was a moment where I thought I might just consider leaving the, 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 the public service and, uh, and going into the academia and legal practice. Uh, then, all of a sudden, September 2016, uh, I got a phone call from the designated prime minister then, his name is Dr. Hamid Mulqi, and he told me, I want you to join the team as Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. So I moved into his cabinet, stayed in his cabinet for a couple of years, and then, uh, and then I exited and I retired for about six months. In that period, I actually registered with the Jordan Bar Association, uh, because you need to basically register in the Bar Association. Uh, and, uh, and then undergo uh, one year of practical training before you qualify as a practicing lawyer in Jordan. So I registered, and then in August, I was basically asked to, uh, to go and, uh, and become the ambassador in France. And at that point in time, frankly, I mean, I thought that I'm, I, was, I was just 49. This was basically, for, I was 49 years old. I thought at that point in time that probably I'll do the Paris UNESCO posting and maybe uh, do another ambassadorial posting before I hit the mandatory retirement age in Jordan, which is 60. Uh, and, and this was the mindset that basically I approached Paris with. I remember landing in Paris on the 7th of November uh, 2018. And at that particular point in time, I would have thought that any proposition that I'd be back as His Majesty's advisor on the 20th of April 2019 uh, as uh, something that's quite inconceivable. I never thought it would happen. But, but then it happened overnight and I came back and, and, and had the honor and privilege of being next to His Majesty. And then in the midst of basically dealing with the corona pandemic, which hit us soon after I took up that position, uh, uh, seven, eight months down the line, uh, uh, His Majesty just honored me by asking me to become the Prime Minister when the government of my predecessor, Dr. Omar Razaz, resigned as a constitutional requirement because the tenure and term of Parliament had ended. And, um, and, uh, and His Majesty had to dissolve the Parliament and the constitutional requirement stipulated back then that the government, during which tenure the Parliament is dissolved, is compelled to resign within seven days. Mm -hmm. So the government resigned, and then uh, I, was, uh, I was surprised that, 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 that His Majesty basically asked me to, to step in uh, at a time that was quite difficult, because we had peaked in terms of the number of, of uh, uh, affected uh, 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 Jordanians by COVID. I mean, on, on that week, the numbers of those who have contracted COVID jumped, Professor, from 300 to 3,700. And we had limited uh, bed capacities in the hospitals, so literally we hit the ground running in terms of attempting to increase capacity to get our hands on, uh, on vaccines and vaccinations. Uh, we had to mitigate against the socio, socio and economic impacts of closing sectors, lockdowns, things that I think we've all lived during the COVID era. But it was quite tough, and we stayed in that, in that mood for about a year or so. Uh, but along the path, no, there were moments where basically, no, things did not appear. I, 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 I certainly did not, uh, I, planned, I planned up until the ministerial level. Beyond that, uh, uh, no, not really. Uh, I worked for it, but I didn't really plan for it necessarily. It's, it's an amazing story, and I, I have so many more questions, but, and I'd certainly like to draw on you know, your advice for students as to... Um, know how to deal with those challenges when things don't work out but maybe we can come back to that or maybe the questions come back to that because we've got th three things we could 
We could spend the whole evening talking about this, but frankly, I would really love to. But we've got a couple, a couple of other topics for this sure. evening too. So, so you mentioned when you became prime minister in October of 2020. Um, one of obviously one of your primary goals uh, was dealing with uh, uh, COVID, uh, getting vaccinations when they were available, etc. So it's a huge challenge. Um, uh, but also, when you took on the role of prime minister, you said that your primary goal was to was to overhaul the Jordanian economy, was to address the weaknesses in the Jordanian economy. And Jordan faces significant economic obstacles. Um, it's uh, a relatively small country. It has uh, close to no sea border. I think you've got about 27 kilometers. One one port in the south. Um, you've got phosphate reserves, but you don't have many of the minerals. And for all of Jordan's history. You've had conflict on your borders, and especially in the past couple of decades, you've had significant conflict on your borders. Uh, now, when you, when you look at the statistics for, for Jordanian economic growth, in light of all those factors, it's pretty remarkable, right? You've, you've had, on average, over the past uh, uh, 20 years, something like 2 to 3% per annum yeah. uh, economic growth. But, but yet, compared to your neighbors, um, uh, it's, 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 it's relatively low. So uh, you've done well in the context, but you need to do better. And you wanted to overhaul the Jordanian economy. So I, wish, I wonder whether you could say a few things about what it is you think today are, are the things that you should be doing to increase the overall growth rate of the Jordanian economy. What are the institutional, the legal, the market reforms that you need to engage in to, uh, to alter the trajectory of that growth rate? Uh, thank you for this question. And, uh, and absolutely. Uh, basically, we were tasked with, uh, with attempting to mitigate the economic difficulties and challenges and to realize the full potentials uh, that, uh, that Jordan has by His Majesty in his letter of designation to the government. And it came in the midst of, uh, of COVID. Uh, and, uh, and COVID uh, was associated with fundamentally a negative growth rate of minus, minus 1.6. This is where, where we were in the middle of COVID. But also, COVID came towards the end of what, what was a relatively also difficult decade for Jordan that extended from 2010 uh, uh, on to uh, 2019, 2020, where, as you correctly pointed, the growth rates were basically hovering around 2%, as opposed to uh, a, a height of around 6 to 7% uh, uh, between 2003 and 2007, in which the economy was doing quite well. But in the midst of the Arab Spring and subsequently, the, the growth rate was hovering at around 1.8 to 2 percent for an entire decade. And this did hit uh, the economy badly, generated or increased the challenge of unemployment. Uh, by that point in time, uh, the unemployment uh, percentage was at about, or stood at about 19.5 percent. Then during COVID, it went to about 24 percent, 31 percent of, uh, of that is. Uh, is, is women unemployment, and, uh, and around 46% of that is youth, which is a very, very big challenge, particularly in a country that is quite rich with, with its human resources and with an educated population. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are basically uh, people who have went through uh, uh, a, a rather solid uh, educational pipeline and, and expect a measure of employability and being able to find jobs. Uh, so it was, uh, it was quite tough, and then we had the closures in COVID, which did not help us, because we had, we had fundamentally curfews for around six or seven months. And then we had uh, severe restrictions that lasted for about two years, 
We had school interruptions that lasted for 195 days in Jordan, 195, which is, which is, which is quite high, uh, schools and universities. And it took us about a year uh, before we began to gradually reopen the sectors, uh, reopen educational facilities in a manner that's quite safe. And we embarked on programs. We had to enact the defense law, so, 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 which is a law that's provided for in the Constitution to meet extraordinary circumstances. And that law, once, once it's effected, it allows you to basically freeze the application of other laws and then introduce programs of assistance that are directed at social welfare, directed at providing financing windows for industries, for businesses, uh, for agro-industries, for a tourism sector that has fundamentally went uh, belly up as a result of, uh, of COVID, and this is one of the major enablers and sectors in Jordan. Um, we did all of that, and then we reintroduced the opening of various sectors. And, uh, and as we were recovering, this coincided with uh, Jordan entering into its, its, its second centennial. Uh, uh, Jordan is a country today that's, a, that, that's 102 years old. Uh, uh, and at that point in time, His Majesty the King fundamentally spearheaded and led a comprehensive reform agenda uh, with three tiers, a political tier in which the King was advocating that people need to mobilize around political parties with national agendas and to basically express their views in the context of political parties and the enactment of at least a portion uh, over, the, over three increments, three parliamentary sessions that would take us to an all political party parliament, as opposed to individual representation parliament like, as, as we have now. Uh, and, and that political agenda was meant to last for, for uh, to span over a time span of 10 years. The first, the first station of that is actually the summer. So this summer we should be uh, having elections that are held on the basis of, uh, of that political modernization uh, tier uh, and avenue that His Majesty had, had basically ordered and appointed an independent royal committee to, uh, to, to, to lead, prescribed a new law for political parties, and now political parties are fundamentally organizing and providing manifestos uh, of what their programs are once they are elected in parliament. Initially, we will start with the 41 seats for political parties uh, from a parliament membership of 137 uh, seats. Uh, four years down the line, that would be increased to 66, and then uh, four years after that, uh, you would have an all political party parliament. Uh, and with that, we had an amendment, to, um, significant amendment to the, to, to the uh, elections law in Jordan uh, in a manner that also aimed at tailoring those elections law to, uh, laws to empower uh, and augment the presence and participation of women and the youth uh, by dictating that in uh, in, in, in the parliamentary lists of, uh, uh, of, uh, of candidates, you must have a woman in your first three uh, uh, numbers of, uh, of order in the lists, and you must have uh, at least one, one youngster under the age of, uh, of 30. Uh, the, first of, uh, uh, the first station, so to speak, uh, of, of this amended political track that was coupled with constitutional amendments. One third of the constitution was basically amended uh, to, to, uh, to cushion and support this shift towards more uh, partisan participation and mobilization of the grassroots roots and bringing them uh, closer to decision-making processes uh, was done. But uh, in tandem with that, also His Majesty announced another track that ran in, 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 in parallel and through public-private consultation that was quite extensive, 
on an economic modernization vision that aspired to increase the growth rate in Jordan by doubling it over the course of 10 years. And, uh, 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 and with the hope that this, was, that this would create around 1 million jobs towards the end of 10 years, uh, beginning in 2022. Uh, we were hitting all the targets. Uh, uh, our growth rate was oscillating up until the end of the third quarter of 2023. It was basically around 2.8%, which even surpassed the expectations of, uh, uh, of our partners at the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, the performance of the tourism sector was doing fantastically well. Uh, we were definitely beating the uh, what we considered to be the record year in Jordan's history in, in, in tourism revenues and tickets, which was uh, 2019 by around 23%. Uh, we, uh, we had uh, successfully embarked on an extended fund facility with the IMF uh, that began with uh, the implementation began with, with this government uh, taking office in Jordan, and we conducted six successful reviews with the IMF on that extended fund facility program, uh, and we were meeting all the targets and objectives, did structural reforms that increased the competitiveness of the Jordanian economy uh, by introducing uh, a new investment law, because the assumption of the economic modernization vision is that to create those jobs to double growth, uh, uh, you, will, you cannot look to the public sector uh, for creating employment. You have to encourage the private sector and treat the private sector as a true partner and then have a success story that can induce foreign investment to come into to Jordan and to operate in Jordan. And we were quite successful. We basically had, uh, until the third quarter, uh, we had an increase in foreign direct investment by 300 million Jordanian dinars, which is close to... Uh, 340 uh, sterling pounds. Uh, uh, we introduced uh, uh, and began explorations in high-value industries and in mining uh, uh, to expand phosphate, potash, but also uh, oil, uh, and there is a good potential for some oil reserves and, uh, and gas in, in a region. Uh, uh, in addition to rare earth elements that, that basically have a, a, a significant market, and all of the features, they appear to point in the direction of being quite optimistic uh, to make serious and significant findings that would then allow us to enter into partnerships that would allow the exploration of uh, uh, the full exploration, the exploitation of those natural resources in a manner that benefits the Jordanian economy. Uh, then comes the, uh, the, the, the fourth uh, quarter, uh, and the regrettable uh, uh, events that are still continuing and the carnage that's, that's still continuing today in Gaza and, and, and the deaths of, uh, uh, of 25,000 civilians and, uh, and 50,000 wounded and uh, frankly speaking, ticking all the boxes of uh, what I used to read when I was a law student about uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity that are exacted against the civilian population of Gaza today. Uh, uh, and this had a direct and immediate impact on the Jordanian economy and on the economy of the region in general. And the, the longer that this carnage continues, and I think that we, can, we should basically mobilize all our efforts today to bring this to a ceasefire, not today, but yesterday, a real and genuine and sustained ceasefire, coupled with the, the full insurance of uh, supplying Gaza consistently and, um, and, and, uh, and, and through a sustainable mechanism with all the humanitarian medical assistance that it needs because the conditions there that are being exacted by the 
uh, Israeli army and by the Israeli forces are fundamentally rendering the entire place uh, uninhabitable for 2.3 million uh, civilians and individuals. And the argument that this is uh, a translation of any measure of self-defense, I think, escapes the Caroline case test, which basically says that self-defense uh, has to be in response to an act that is instant, overwhelming, leaves no choice or means or a moment of deliberation, and has to be conditioned by the two requisites of proportionality and necessity. And that certainly does not meet that test. If you go to the UN Charter, Article 51, uh, then uh, self-defense is fundamentally against if an armed attack occurs against the territorial, the territorial integrity, political independence of a member state, and you basically have to take actions and report them to the Security Council. None of that actually happened. On the contrary, I think the Security Council, uh, regrettably, failed to uh, act uh, in a situation and condition that, is, uh, that, ha that, that does endanger international peace and security severely, that's impacting the economies of the region, and that is fundamentally also radicalizing, I think, generations in directions that, uh, that would in turn lead to more fragility in the maintenance of international peace and security. And certainly, the way that the, uh, the, 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 way that the world, or part of the world, some of the world, is treating those atrocities in Gaza, uh, appear to regrettably again indicate that uh, upholding and protecting the rules-based international system stops short of certain boundaries and uh, is no longer argued as uh, a primordial tenet of the international system that emerged after World, World War II when, uh, uh, when the breaches are committed by uh, a few countries, and maybe one particular country that has been accorded and is being accorded impunity from such breaches. We hope that this stops and that this stops immediately. His Majesty has been tirelessly working in the direction of doing so. Uh, not only in the political context, but, but also in the context of basically restoring that measure of normalcy that we need for the economy of the region uh, to be resuscitated and to, uh, and to move on. Uh, and, uh, and fundamentally, I think we need to all uh, pool our efforts uh, seriously uh, uh, to realizing the two-state solution in our region, because this is what will fundamentally usher in peace, stability, security for Israel, and definitely unlock the potential of our region economically. So, Prime Minister, thank you for that. So, so you've moved on to the conflict. Um, maybe we'll come back to the economy. I've got a couple of other questions, but... You know, I mean, I went on that you, tangent. Not I didn't at all. speak about administrative not at reform, all. which is something that we're doing. If we have time, we'll come back. But, so let's move on to the conflict. And, um, and the final thing that you mentioned there, um, so, there's going to be lots of different views about many sure. of the things that you've said. Um, but one thing that I think everyone will completely agree on is that what, what we need is a, is, is a solution uh, so that, uh, that all these problems can get addressed and, and that the war can stop. Um, and from a Jordanian perspective as well, whether it's a humanitarian perspective or it's an economic perspective, it's, it, there are serious impercussions, repercussions for Jordan as well. So you mentioned the, the two-state solution, and I know um, King Abdullah has many times talked about the two-state solution, and, and so many others have done so as well. I mean, the U.S. Secretary of State um, uh, said only a couple of days ago, and I quote, genuine security for Israel requires a two-state solution. And yet, 
It, it seems that neither side in the conflict thinks that that two-state solution is really remotely conceivable. Um, or at least that's what both sides seem to say. So, so how do we get there, right? And how, how, where is this route to peace? Where is this route to the two-state solution? It's a long path, but, but how do we get there? And what are the incremental steps that can be taken to make it happen? How can we persuade both sides that this can happen and it can be successful? I think this is the key question, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I don't know whether it's both sides. And perhaps I, uh, I should caution that, 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 that basically uh, even the one side, it's not the entirety of the one side that's not, that's not embraceful of the two-state solution. Uh, uh, I think that uh, if you look at the Arab world for a moment, uh, you have something called the Arab Peace Initiative that was, uh, that was authored by Saudi Arabia uh, more than 20 years ago that fundamentally spoke about uh, normal relations between the Arab world and Israel in return for the emergence of the independent sovereign uh, Palestinian state on the 67 lines uh, with the ter ter territorial scope of uh, uh, the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem being that territorial scope of that Palestinian state that lives then side by side in peace and security with the state of Israel. And that Arab peace initiative that was authored by the Saudis subsequently also was embraced by the, the entirety of the Islamic states, Organization of Islamic Unity, which is 57 Islamic states. Um, and the intention of that was fundamentally to give a boost to the Madrid process that aimed at resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict, at the heart of which uh, is the Palestinian-Israeli dynamic. And that process began in 1991, then in 2001, 2002, there was a general feeling that was losing some steam and required basically uh, uh, some, uh, some catalyst to be introduced as a potential game changer that carried incentives of establishing normal relations between the Arab world, the Islamic world, and, and, and Israel in return for Israeli withdrawal from the Arab territories occupied, uh, the establishment of Palestinian state, and the, the withdrawal from Lebanese and Syrian occupied territories. Uh, uh, and the Arab world has been basically moving in that direction wholeheartedly. Uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, the agent of which is today the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, uh, has been uh, wholeheartedly uh, committing to that principle repeatedly. Uh, uh, regrettably, uh, I think that basically the realization of that goal has been repeatedly beholden by the uh, small domestic political personal calculations of uh, a few uh, in Israel uh, who still subscribe to living in the context of a fortress mentality and who uh, promulgate and advocate that, 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 that the answer is in security solutions. Uh, and uh, I don't know how can, how can they not see uh, uh, the, the, the clear reality in front of them today that, that, uh, that the security of Israel and Israelis has been eroded. Today it's much more vulnerable than it used to be 25 years ago uh, or 30 years ago. Uh, uh, so it's fundamentally uh, and, and honestly and objectively, it's one side, not both sides. In the case of Jordan, King Abdullah, for the past 10 years at least, he has been cautioning that fundamentally the region will go up in flames if we do not reach a two-state solution whereby the independent sovereign Palestinian state emerges on the 67 lines with East Jerusalem as its capital 
because this is the only wager that can also ensure Israel's security and stability in the region and unlock the full potential of the region economically uh, and then have Israel not as a geographically con a country that's geographically located in the region but as a country that is integrated in the region for real with all security assurances from its neighbors. But at the end of the day, the onus is on a handful of Israeli politicians who have elected to go in a different direction and to propose that the solution rests in enforceable uh, uh, measures, in uh, perpetual conflict, in wanting to have the cake and to eat it at the same time, which is fundamentally an impossible bind. And, uh, and this is not something uh, that uh, that the world can tolerate, and frankly speaking, I don't think that I think that this is something that's detrimental to the region. And if you take a strategic look, this is something that's quite detrimental for Israel itself and for the security of the Israelis. Because if you don't have a two-state solution, fundamentally, what are the alternatives? A state of perpetual war and conflict, or uh, one-state reality? That one-state reality uh, that extends from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean today has a demography of 7.2 uh, Israeli Jews and 7.4 uh, Arabs, 7.4 million Arabs. Mm. Uh, what will the model of governance be? The mo if the model of, gov model of governance will be a full-fledged democracy uh, as uh, Israel uh, uh, likes to basically showcase as the, 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 uh, for many years, as, as con contending of being the only, the only true liberal democracy in the Middle East, it will have to accord equal citizenship rights to those 7.4 million Arabs uh, uh, in Israel as equal citizens, or it will have to embark on a course of action that fundamenta fundamentally represents apartheid policies, and this is not something that I think today the world can tolerate or accept uh, uh, in any quarter. Uh, uh, so it's something that is also in the interest of Israel and the Israelis to go on and, 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 and realize and materialize the two-state solution. So can I just push you on that, sure. on that idea that it's in the interest of Israel and how it can become in the interest of Israel? So the, question, the fundamental question then from that perspective is how, how, how can you persuade uh, Israel that a two-state solution actually does provide it with its security? And then there's a more granular question, which is, what do the institutional structures look like of a two-state solution that, that would give Israel, after October the 7th, the, the comfort that a two-state solution would provide it with security? The problem and challenge did not begin on October 7th, David. Uh, the root cause of the problem in the sense of lack of security, uh, if it exists and permeates, and I think that it does exist in certain quarters in Israel legitimately, uh, springs from the fact of that there is a continued occupation of Palestinian and Arab territories uh, since 1967. And, uh, uh, and frankly speaking, uh, 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 at least a current, lineup, a current lineup of Israeli politicians are not willing to take the necessary strategic decisions that are courageous to achieve historic closure. Uh, this is the reality. Uh, uh, today, uh, uh, where do we go next? Uh, uh, nobody will, will sign on to uh, a management mode for the day after the uh, end of the aggression and hostilities in Gaza. Uh, today, if the presentation is not in the context of uh, an approach that is very serious, 
that is timeline that identifies upfront the end game as the two-state solution and the emergence of an independent, sovereign Palestinian state on the 67 borders with the territorial scope of the West Bank, uh, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and then reverse engineering the process of how to get there within a defined time, time, and timeline and time-bound uh, mechanism and process with assurances and guarantees, nobody will be, able, will be able or willing to jump onto a management mode that attempts to only address security considerations that matter to Israel and the Israelis. The, the, the issue has to be much broader, and the issue has to basically address the root cause in, uh, in departure of uh, a forced zero-sum game. Uh, this is something that has to be a win-win-win, and we have to be committed and serious in reaching that objective and realizing that objective. Uh, I was looking uh, uh, at some literature that I had uh, just about 10 days ago, and I found an, an edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, and the cover story of the Foreign Affairs magazine then, I think it was the summer of 2014, and it was, again, one of those episodes of eruption of, uh, uh, of, uh, of kinetic armed activity in and against Gaza by Israel. And, and the cover story was, uh, 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 what after Gaza? Uh, uh, that's 2014. And, and fundamentally, the circumstances have not changed. And I think, basically, uh, it, here we have a situation where, fundamentally, if we attempt to do the same thing repeatedly and, and assume different results, we would be embarking on uh, an insane course of action. Uh, management did not cut it. We had six major eruptions of, uh, of armed, act, uh, armed conflict and activities and atrocities in Gaza over the past 13 years uh, because, we, because the, the, the forces that, uh, that, that matter did not embark on a more comprehensive approach that aims at fundamentally realizing the two-state solution. His Majesty has been cautioning about that repeatedly, and I think that basically his propositions have been validated uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the recent ongoing carnage that the Gazans are suffering from, uh, and the region is suffering from, uh, and, uh, and uh, it is not certainly bringing Israel closer to a sense of uh, security and, and, and achievement, uh, and it is regrettably an exercise in futility in repeating human lives. This is what we see today. Thank you, Prime Minister. And I have lots of questions, and I know the audience will have lots of questions on this too, but I've really only got time for two more questions from me, and it, it's connecting to what you're talking about there, about making this happen, leadership, and somewhat paradoxically in this article today, there's an article in Politico today, and, and it's Contrary to your view, it's, it's entitled, The Two-Stage Solution is Dead, Why Pretend Anymore? But yet, in that article is, are several quotes from a, a former Likud leader and prime, and prime Minister of Israel, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, Olmert, who is strongly in favor of a two-state solution. And when pushed on how to make it happen, um, I'm not sure how helpful this is, but he says, you just have to do it. This is an act of leadership. And this is what we're missing now. So my next question to you about the conflict is about leadership, right? Um, this is an incredibly difficult time uh, uh, for the Middle East, an incredibly difficult time for Jordan. 
and, and, and not least going back to our former conversation, significant economic pressures, strong inflationary pressures, cost of transportation up 160%, that would drive interest rates up, tourism is down, you were doing great and now you're not. Uh, you've got huge political pressures, geopolitical pressures placed upon you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your experience of leadership in these situations? And, you know, for many of the people who will be leaders today and in this room, you know, what lessons can you share about your experience of leadership during this crisis? In, in all honesty, this is something, uh, I think, the trappings of uh, executive office. Uh, in my case, are inspired by, honestly, the leadership, lead, leadership skills of His Majesty the King. His Majesty King Abdullah is just a remarkable human being in, in being able, fundamentally, to bequeath always positives out of difficult situations uh, and to really uh, harness challenges and, and turn them into opportunities. Uh, it's in the context of COVID that he basically introduced and embraced a policy that allowed us and allows us today to have strategic reserves of barley and wheat that, uh, that, that is sufficient for Jordan and for Jordan's, for Jordan's consumption for about uh, uh, 12 months, 13 months. Uh, and this uh, definitely creates a buffer from, from certain aspects pertaining to inflationary tendencies as a result of what you pointed out and correctly addressed in the context of the increase and rise in, uh, in the cost of transport, insurance to the region in general terms. Uh, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of also doing the right thing in, and, 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 and just not uh, succumbing uh, to the reality of buckling under pressure and deviating from the needed structural reforms that we need to do. Uh, in the midst of corona and now, uh, uh, we have managed as opposed to all non-oil exporting countries in the region uh, to have a controlled inflation rate that stood at 2.31%. Uh, we have sta stayed and steadied the course in, uh, 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 in fundamentally phasing out subsidies and in expanding the social safety network to our people uh, and in the context of uh, meeting our, uh, our uh, uh, revenue streams in the context of improving the modalities of tax, uh, of tax collection and curbing on tax evasion and tax avoidance very, very effectively and very, very efficiently in the context of attracting an investment envelope just six days, seven days into, uh, uh, into, uh, 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 into the Gaza, uh, regrettable Gaza situation today, uh, we had the announcement of an, of an investment envelope by, uh, by the United Arab Emirates of 5.5 billion US dollars in Jordan in infrastructural projects. Today, we have a public-private uh, partnership program that is being examined, and there was a bid that was submitted uh, for uh, a, a major environmental and, and, and water project, which is the National Conveyor Project that aims at desalinating uh, 20 million, uh, 200 million cubic meters of, of, of water for, uh, uh, for meeting the needs of Jordan in water. And you know, basically, we're one of the scarce countries uh, in water resources, we're probably one of the poorest three countries globally in, in water resources. Uh, 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 the challenges of an increase of the cost of those PPPs may be there, there as a result of the inflationary impact of what's going on in Gaza today, but we're basically staying the course, steadying the course. 
We have uh, embarked on, uh, on all of our structural reforms uh, under duress and never succumbed to the attraction of saying that we want to freeze the status quo and still remain in the game of subsidies and not embark on restructuring and increasing the competitiveness of the economy by stabilizing uh, the price of electricity rather than reducing it to competitive sectors. We did the exact opposite. Uh, we have a depletion in the context of basically uh, the tariff associated with water consumption in Jordan. The tariff was static for about 12 years with a loss for the Jordanian Water Authority uh, that amounts to 2 billion Jordanian dinars, which is big by the Jordanian standards. This government uh, took the, the, the bold steps and measures of adjusting that tariff to reduce that, uh, uh, that loss, which leads in an increased debt ceiling. Uh, the rating agencies, Moody's, Standard and & Fitch, and, and, and Poor's, while they downgraded the, uh, the other non-oil importing economies in the region, including Israel, have basically maintained our ratings as uh, stable, and, uh, 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 and two of them fundamentally with an outlook that is positive, uh, despite the Gaza conflict. This is a country that's quite resilient. This is a country that enjoys a lot of goodwill uh, as a result of sound policies that its leadership embodied in His Majesty the King fundamentally has embarked upon. It's a country that, that carries a lot of good faith uh, globally uh, uh, in uh, decision-making quarters, uh, whether be it in Europe or in the States. Uh, and that is owed to fundamentally adhering also to principled positions uh, that aim at delivering the betterment uh, uh, of, uh, of the region, of the globe, and not only Jordanian citizens. Uh, it is this exercise of leadership uh, that is led by His Majesty that fundamentally allows us to basically to, to, to hedge against uh, uh, unknowns and to be in safe spots and to also exact change and move the dial positively, uh, owing to that goodwill that I think we've managed to accumulate along the years due to the embracement of sound policies and principled positions. Thank you so much, Prime Minister. Um, I have lots more questions. I have the good fortune of being able to ask you them later. Um, and not everyone in the room does. So um, we were running a little bit late, as you know. We started a little bit late, but we do have some time for questions. Um, it, it may be the case that the Prime Minister is unable to answer, given the nature of the ongoing conflict, depending on your question. Um, but we will take uh, uh, a few uh, uh, questions uh, from the room. Um, if, if, if I could take uh, the, the, the woman here in black first. Marhaba. Um. My name is Razan, and I'm a master's student here at the LSE. And I want to refer back to your thesis, which I've actually drawn a lot of inspiration from. Upon reflecting on the historical atrocities in wider Palestine, how have you translated your conclusions uh, from the dissertation to your political agenda today and to contemporary conversations that you're engaged in? Do you think that Jordan continues to be responsible and can still be held responsible for bringing forward the matter of right to return and compensation for Palestinian refugees in Jordan? And if so, how do you, in your capacity, plan to act on that? The Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty was signed in one year after the uh, uh, the, the Declaration of Principles and the Palestinian-Israeli uh, uh, DOP. And the peace treaty was structured in the context uh, that, that clearly referred to a few final status issues. Uh, 
borders, uh, uh, settlement, uh, settlements, uh, Jerusalem and refugees. And that's why the peace treaty, the Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty, referred to the issue of resolving the issue of Palestinian refugees and displaced persons uh, in, uh, in conjunction with and at the same time as uh, the kickoff time of what was supposed to be the final status negotiations that never materialized. So we have to basically cross that benchmark in, 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 in that particular context uh, where we begin a discussion about final status issues between the Palestinians, the PLO being the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinians in accordance with the Oslo Accords, so that that process can kick in. Uh, and the other modality is, of course, the Joint Claims Commission, which has not met for quite some time. Uh, as a result, again, maybe of the stagnation on the front of the Palestinian-Israeli negotiations. So the, the, there are those issues that are tied organically in their very, very nature to final status negotiations that are embedded in the DOP between the PLO and Israel in terms of timelines. Uh, I attempted to basically survey what can we bend on at, at the minute that discussion begins because we don't want to blindside also anyone or to basically appear as competing for any form of political representation. This is not our objective. The title of my thesis was basically uh, uh, Jordanian citizens of Palestinian refugee standing and origin as opposed to all Palestinian refugees who arguably have the right of return and the right of compensation under international law. And I examined which articles could be then useful and helpful in the case that Jordan contends and decides uh, to take that matter further in the context of a joint claims commission in forums, in the appropriate forums associated with fine states negotiations, uh, in the context of contending that there are potentially and possibly violations of Article, uh, Article 11 of the Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty, uh, if my memory still, still serves me. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and again, this is benchmarked against the inception of final status negotiations. Uh, between the Palestinians uh, and the PLO and the State of Israel. Uh, and certainly, when that time comes, those are final status negotiations and issues uh, that we will embrace and that we will present. Uh, and this is something, this is basically a line that has been upheld politically as, sta as a political statement that is a fixture in Jordanian <coughs> politics which is basically upholding the right of Palestinians to return and to compensation and the right of Jordan to compensation as a result of hosting this large number of Palestinian refugees who are concurrently Jordanian citizens too. Thank you, Prime Minister. There are very few academics in the room who could talk about their PhD from the 1990s as eloquently and as detailed as you just did. That's so, so impressive. Um, so just to be clear, I've got uh, this gentleman here. I've got the gentleman at the back at, at the, at, on the left. And I'd like to get uh, some of the women. So I'll have, then I'll come to you after that. So um, you first, you second, and you third. Zaid Shahat. Your Excellency. It's good to see you. Nice to see you after years. Uh, my question is very simple. What can be done uh, to stop, uh, to make Israel stop killing people? Because we saw, we saw like Security Council failed, uh, all other human uh, interventions failed. So it seems we need mysterious power to convince the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do that because even against the American saying no two-state solution and he's against that. So is the solution is Benjamin Netanyahu go and there is talk and division within Israel about 
a new government, the American administration, sources in the White House saying there is uh, what after Netanyahu, not what after Gaza, because as far as Netanyahu in power, Gaza war is, is going on. So is there any room for a human intervention to make Israel stop killing people? Because it's the scene on the TV, and I saw it every day, and I, I even analyzed that on BBC English, and it's make you cry to see like, People killed a small little daughter, eight years old, they said, she said once, I woke up at night and I miss my mom. It's devastating. Thank you. You may take a step at that. Thank you so much, Dr. Shahat, and it's, it's, it's so good to see you after so many years. Uh, listen, uh, it was Jordan that fundamentally moved and sponsored and tabled um, a resolution at the UN. Uh, to a resumed special session, the 10th special session uh, at the United Nations General, um, General Assembly, uh, citing the powers of the General Assembly and the general competence under Article 10 and the Uniting for Peace mechanism that clearly stipulates, and we're all lawyers, that basically although the Security Council has the primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security, um, in the event that the Security Council is unwilling or unable to act as a result of the exercise of a veto, then the General Assembly can exercise that jurisdiction and issue recommendations, uh, which is exactly what we did. And the Uniting for Peace resolution came in the context and the annals of the Korean crisis and the impasse associated with that at the Security Council. Today we have something similar. Uh, and uh, the Security Council was not able to act on the front of, uh, uh, of requesting uh, a ceasefire. So uh, Jordan took the lead in, uh, in drafting and presenting uh, a resolution that was co-sponsored by Arab countries and that received the approval of 144 states uh, uh, to exactly do that. Uh, but Israel did not heed that. <coughs> Israel also did not respect a resolution that was actually adopted by the Security Council on humanitarian assistance and, the, and, and allowing the flow of humanitarian goods into, uh, uh, into the entirety of Gaza, the north, the south, and, 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 uh, and the middle. Uh, Today, leadership is needed uh, uh, from many, including our American friends and American partners, uh, and uh, from various capitals uh, in the world uh, uh, that can influence the decision-making process in Israel in general terms uh, to bring this carnage to an end. Uh, public opinions in, in, in the West are, I think, very clear on where they stand. Uh, when they see those atrocities committed and, uh, and the pressure that this international uh, rule-based system is being put under uh, as a result of the impunity of one single country in the application of that, those rules that the system is based upon uh, in this particular case. And I think that you're seeing pressures that are, uh, that are coming from, from other quarters. There's an advisory opinion that, uh, that, uh, that, the, that, that will be looked, looked at by the International Court of Justice uh, in mid-February. Uh, in response to a request by the General Assembly that was made way before October 7th on the legal consequences of Israel's continued occupation of, uh, uh, of Palestinian uh, territories, the West Bank and, uh, 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 and, uh, and East Jerusalem, uh, which we will partake, partake and participate in. But today, I think that the main powers are under not only just a moral responsibility, but also, I think, under an obligation in the context of preserving a rule-based international system uh, to fundamentally come and tell the Israeli government, the current Israeli government, that this needs to stop, and this needs to stop yesterday. 
uh, and uh, uh, and move into a mood that fundamentally resolves this entire uh, 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 vicious cycle of uh, uh, of violence and uh, and killing and uh, and ticking all the boxes of uh, the whole catalogue, catalog, regrettably, of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Thank you, Prime Minister. So we've got time, I'm afraid, for three questions. No, I've not got time for three questions. We've got time for two questions. The ambassador says, I have two questions. I'm following the ambassador, Alexandra, not you. So, um, gentleman at the back, sorry, I'm not going to come to you. I've already given it away, and then you. So. Thank, thank you, Professor Kershaw, and thank you, Prime Minister, firstly, uh, for your inspiring personal story. I, I uh, was really encouraged by that. Um, I have a request as well. I, I'm Anglo-Palestinian. I'm here tonight with my brother uh, and my niece, and every time we go to Jordan, we are so excited by the tourism there. It's a mainstay of the Jordanian economy. But why is there not more investment in, in, the, in tourism there? I, every time I walk around Jerash or Karak or even go to Petra, I'm mindful that if it was in this country, there would be a visitor centre and at least a £20 entry fee. And in Jordan, there never is. So, so that always puzzles me. My, my more serious question, though, is um, about the Middle East. And I remember Bill Clinton talking about the final days of his administration when he, according to Clinton, very nearly came to an agreement with Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat. Um, but Arafat wouldn't accept the status of East Jerusalem belonging still to uh, the Israeli state. And so uh, pretty much everything else, according to Clinton, was, was solved except the status of East Jerusalem. Um, is, is that, would a solution, but without, would a two-state solution, but without East Jerusalem uh, being part of that Palestinian state, surely that would be progress. As I reflect on the last 20 years, surely that would be in a better place uh, today, if they had reached that agreement, then if one or, or both of those prime ministers had, had given way, surely. Uh, is, that, is that possible? Prime Minister, could we take two questions sure. and then group them? Sure, sure, we're sure. very short of time. Sure. Thank you for that. We've got a question here um, from the woman here at the front. Um, 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 and then if you could be relatively brief, please, and then because we're running out of time, I'm afraid. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, I have a very specific question about uh, other security threats that Jordan is facing, uh, particularly from organized crime and the Capitagon trade, um, especially because Jordan launched airstrikes recently in southern Syria. Thank you. Sorry, Prime Minister, there's a lot to answer there. Not at all. No, that's it. There's two questions. That's it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that's enough. <laughs> uh, again, a rule-based international system. Uh, definition of the occupied Palestinian territories is practically the 1967, pre-June 5th, 1967 line. The pre-June 1967 line, Armistice line, is, um, is a line that squarely places East Jerusalem uh, uh, as part and parcel of the occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, so unless, uh, unless that is also covered by the deal, I think this has the potential of being a deal breaker. 
uh, additionally, in the context of the peace treaty, but also in, in the context of, uh, of the historic and legal status quo uh, uh, in relation to Al-Haram al-Sharif uh, and Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, uh, the Hashemites, and at this day and age, it's His Majesty King Abdullah, who is the custodian of the Christian and Muslim holy sites uh, in Al-Haram al-Sharif, Al-Aqsa Mosque, Christian holy sites, uh, and Muslim holy sites in East Jerusalem. Uh, so in the context of a rules-based international system, uh, East Jerusalem is part and parcel of occupied Palestinian territories, and, and, and any resolution and solution has to fundamentally uh, 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 address and satisfy uh, 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 returning to the status quo ante and uh, achieving a restitution and integral restitution in kind, uh, which will entail and should entail the return of East Jerusalem. But they've toyed with various formulations about, uh, about land swaps in kind, and, uh, and there were a lot of discussions fundamentally about, uh, uh, about uh, uh, what was realistic, what was possible, what was not possible technically, while still preserving entirely uh, the proposition that it is part and parcel of the occupied Palestinian territories. So uh, if there is a will, there is a way in basically uh, getting to that point in time and preserving the rules-based international system. Uh, uh, organized crime, uh, it, it's a major challenge. It, is, uh, 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 it, has, it has required us to have our, uh, uh, our courageous military mobilized at around 85% uh, on our northern and northeastern eastern border. border. Uh, um, it is sophisticated. We are up against uh, organized groups. Uh, that we believe are, in many instances and in cases, associated with sub-state actors uh, and uh, uh, carry a detrimental agenda. Uh, we are in, uh, uh, in an engagement mode day in, day out with them uh, because uh, uh, this is something that endangers uh, uh, our society, uh, our youth, uh, and we have engaged with, uh, with the countries across the border in the north, in the northeast, uh, to basically uh, devise means of cooperation uh, that can rain onto uh, this fear and threat that does not stop at Jordanian borders, because fundamentally it's drugs, and drugs, they come through, uh, uh, they're directed not only at Jordan, but they go further south, uh, into other countries and other territories. Uh, and uh, our armed forces are just performing a magnificent and horrific, horrific, heroic uh, uh, effort in, uh, in protecting our borders, and we will continue to basically do so at all costs. Prime Minister, thank you so much. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but thank you so much thank you. for taking our questions. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.